wouldn't normally do two podcast talks um, so close together, especially at the moment, actually, because I'm supposed to be getting ready for the <laughs> for the Bali School to reopen here. Um, but the, the reason I'm doing a, another episode so close to the previous one um, that I just did is because right at the end of the previous podcast, I mentioned something, which was that I was against short uh, teacher training events in Qigong. Um, and consequently, it was only a sort of short section of it. It was just a short comment, really. It was a... <laughs> I was off on a tangent. Um, I actually got some questions about it, and people have been messaging me today to ask... Why? Why am I against these teacher training courses um, for Qigong? So I'll explain it to you. I, I thought about because it, it is actually a, you know, it, it is actually a, a more important topic um, than it might actually appear. So I do want to talk about it a, a little bit, and I think it's easiest to see kind of what is happening in Qigong if we take that stance that Qigong to me is the new yoga, and what I mean by that is yoga, obviously being a ancient, <laughs> an ancient discipline. I'm not going to say a tradition, I'm going to say a discipline because the amount of effort that is involved in becoming a, a yogi and achieving union, you know, with, with the sort of highest levels of, um, of existence to absorb into, <laughs> you know, uh, the divine, is obviously a, a practice that people dedicated their entire lives to. Now, yoga was a huge uh, system with many limbs to it, and obviously you can find many writings on this. Now, one aspect to yoga was uh, asana, which is body posture practice, basically, uh, you know, the, the postures, the exercises you usually see. So the yoga that you would normally think of would be people going through postures and stretches and balancing on their hands and tying their legs up in a pretzel while wearing hot pants, normally in an exotic location like Bali, like here, you know, or something. That's what people associate with yoga. Then there's another aspect to it, of course, pranayama, breathing exercises, or it actually means, it doesn't mean, it means to govern the, the energy, but whatever, breathing exercises. So really what happened with yoga was many of the other aspects of it were kind of stripped out in contemporary yoga. Now, I would never say that obviously people are no longer practicing authentic yoga because I'm not stupid, and of course they are, and there's people out there that are absolutely fascinated in the subject, uh, studying it in a very traditional fashion. But then there are also people that are simply studying only a very limited aspect of yoga, which is asana. There are people, lots of people doing the stretches um, with a little bit of pranayama, a little bit of breathing work. So if you go to many yoga classes in the West, of which I've, I've been to many, then often what they have become is a glorified stretching class that finishes with a relaxation exercise at the end. Um, Shavasana generally are laying down and, you know, <laughs> like a corpse. So this, this, um, this is what yoga has become, and I'm sure you all know that. This is a kind of mass marketing of yoga. Now, I'm not actually anti that on all levels. I mean, actually, I, I think that many people to exercise or work with their bodies like that is great. Um, and of course, that will come with pros and cons. People have had injuries from yoga, of course. And I've seen uh, sort of bodywork experts. There's that, uh, what do you call, functional patterns. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? I, I'm going to say the guy's name wrong, but I think his name is Naudi Aguilar. Apologies for butchering his name. But... Um, very interesting character, very interesting work he does with bodies and stuff. Um, quite a abrasive <laughs> personality on his approaches sometimes. But if you know that kind of stuff, that the, there's this whole scene in the in the movement arts, obviously they they sometimes are very critical of yoga um, for the problems that the body work can develop. And I don't really have a view either way. I'm not 
well versed in in either of those things they're not my disciplines either of them but interesting to see that even that specialization in body work can be controversial some people will say it's good some say it's bad but that's what yoga's become so instead of being a, a spiritual tradition that's aiming to unify with the divine shall we say now what it is is um, a stretching and fitness exercise and generally, the people who go to it are usually already quite flexible, to be honest. Um, the ones who, who stay in yoga, they started flexible and they stay flexible. But, but of course, great, whatever. So then what happens was yoga gets commercialized and then you start seeing these 100-hour, 200-hour teacher training courses that arise where people can go for a month, normally to a retreat center. There's plenty of them here in Ubud and you can do a month and become a teacher in yoga and become qualified in it, meaning you can then run your own yoga um, classes or your own yoga shala, whatever, after this. Now, this is sort of one way that yoga went. Another way, of course, is that the asana, the study of the postures, became so divorced from uh, the actual original meaning of, of, of what they were for that they became a kind of flowing exercise. So you'll see people trying to be sort of artistically creative with asana. I've been to many classes like that where the aim is to sort of, for the teacher to put together the, all the students, sometimes the most creative version of the asanas as they can. Can you flow from this posture to this posture to this posture? And then sometimes when you're going from your, your down dog into your warrior pose, you'll sort of twist and put a little spine wave on and turn the body then back in so it looks more beautiful. And, and, all, and now you can see yoga starting to divorce from what it was originally and become very um, sort of, well, it's morphed into something else, isn't it? And and this is a kind of modernization of yoga. And I don't know the yoga scene amazingly well. I did spend quite a lot of years in it. But I don't, I'm not aware of the community of it. But I, I'm guessing, I would guess, that there's probably those people that are very pro that kind of development of yoga bodywork. And then I would guess there's probably traditionalists that are a little more scathing of it. I might be wrong, but that would be, I'm pretty, I'm pretty certain that's probably the case. So there's probably very traditional yogis that are saying, actually, look, Mostly, it is a meditative um, system with a series of limbs that lead us towards this place of unification. Um, and there's probably that divide. And, and that divide will have happened, if it exists, hypothetically, from the modernization of yoga. So now what happens is people go and do yoga teacher training courses. And as I said in the podcast yesterday, I've done a couple of them. I'm, I'm certificated in yoga twice um, through <laughs> month-long courses I did. And I never went with the aim of being a yoga teacher. That was never my aim. I, ne I never planned on doing that. But both times that I took the teacher training was because I was an ashram once in Europe and once in India. Um, and I wanted to do some training. I wanted to do, well, actually three weeks, one of them was. And I wanted to do three weeks yoga and, uh, or four weeks yoga in the other case. And, and each time the teachers were like, well, no, you can't. You can only come, the only month we do is teacher trainings, nothing else. It's just like a rolling teacher training over and over. Now, in both those instances, I really just wanted to sort my body out. I didn't want to go deep into yoga. I just wanted a month of stretching and mobilizing and in both cases they were after long periods of meditation so I just wanted to move my body around you know I get quite fidgety you know if I have to sit there in retreat so I want to move I'm a very yang animated person some of you may have noticed so I went to these retreats and of course they said you can only do it if you do the teacher training so of course I did the teacher training in each case that was what I did in the month and even though I said to the teacher I'd not the people running it, I don't wish to be a yoga teacher. Um, I still got the certificates anyway. So that's kind of how it is. And I think that a lot of people have done that. I mean, here in Ubud in yoga, in Bali, not in yoga, Ubud in Bali, sorry, not Ubud in yoga, Ubud in Bali, 
Um, you could throw a stone, not that it would be nice, but you could throw a stone and hit a yoga teacher. They're all over the place. Like I feel like everybody who's been here more than five minutes as a yoga teacher, every single person, they all come here for these retreats and do it. And they've, they've all got yoga certification. It's the same in towns like Tulum, um, uh, places, uh, you know, Sedona, I'm sure. There's lots of this going on. And obviously Rishikesh in India, there's tons. You know, there's all these little towns where everyone comes to do it. So then you have your issue is once everyone's done yoga and then they got the certificate and they know all the different postures and they can balance on one hand, what are they going to do now? Because realistically, actually aiming for union is difficult. So instead they do something else. And now they turn to the newest thing, which is Qigong. And this is kind of where I think we, we sit historically now is Qigong is the new yoga. So I've even seen I've even seen that article in magazines. Off the top of my head, I'm going to say the Elephant Journal, but I'm probably completely wrong. But I've seen it in some yoga or alternative magazines where people are saying Qigong is the new yoga. So all these people are turning to it to add to it because they're looking for some variety. Now, if you know anything about Qigong, you know that actually Qigong is not much like yoga, not really, or not like asana, not particularly. It has some postural work in it, but traditional yoga is more like pranayama, and more like some of the other limbs and has versions of the sort of career aspects to it and 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 the meditative aspect is is similar so it, it's it wasn't quite like in its original form it's not much like asana so therefore when you come to qigong it's probably a little bit um disappointing or a bit boredom boring to a lot of people that are used to doing ashtanga or something like that and moving their body so consequently what's happened is people have started to morph yoga I can see, uh, morph Qigong, sorry. My words are muddled up tonight, I apologize. It's been a long day planning for the school. People are starting to morph Qigong. You know, they're changing it, they're adjusting it, they're turning it into yoga. So what I'm seeing is people are taking sequences, um, and this isn't just Westerners, you know, it's easy to blame Westerners. I see Chinese people doing the same. It, it doesn't matter where they're from. People are taking the sequences and they're making them bigger and they're making them more stretched. And they are putting them into flow sequences or they're emphasizing them. And essentially, they're creating a form of asana. There is a lot of versions of the animal frolics, the wuxinxi, that, that is, if you look around in Qigong, you'll see animal frolics, which are now sequences of movements people are doing. It's basically yoga, big twists, um, flapping your arms like a bird, stepping and twisting the body and coiler coming the floor and opening up, that kind of stuff, you know. And those kind of exercises essentially becoming yoga. They're about the body or they're, they're becoming modern asana-based yoga, body-based yoga. And that's what's going on. And you can see the people that are making these changes are marketing it at the yoga people. I even see the, the advertising being the same because it used to be, you know, if you had a picture of Qigong, remember when I started, it would be either a photo of some Chinese people in a park or the Bund in Shanghai. They used to love showing people doing Tai Chi on the Bund, which I never really understood because I always thought Shanghai Bund, that waterfront area is a little ugly, but there you go. So always see the old people on the Bund. Or you'd see... Um, or generally old people, or a little bit overweight people, because <laughs> we used to associate in old days chi belly, this idea with being fat. But it was never the same as yoga. You know, you, it wasn't like yoga photos were always a woman in a white top, leaning back, lost in rapture in a lotus position, sat by an infinity pool in the jungle. And actually, a lot of those photos are taken here in Bali. Um, I know the places where they took a lot of them, <laughs> or Thailand was a common one as well. And so a very different marketing, but now I'm seeing Qigong's marketing move to that. So now what you're seeing is Qigong videos and photos often including attractive, slim, young women, women um, in skimpy outfits or flowing outfits, you know, 
going through the sequences. All the, all the old people have gone out the videos. All the old people, nobody wants to look at it. Elderly can't sell anything. Let's get the elderly out of the way. They don't look as nice. Push them out the adverts. Men, push them out the adverts as well. Fatties, get rid of them too. We don't believe, you know, we, we pretend we're into fat positivity until we're trying to sell something and then actually we've got to get the fat ones out of the way. And instead what you're left with then is just the young, attractive, slim females. So, so now the marketing has that. How many Qigong schools do you go into in on Instagram or YouTube or something like that, and it's just young, attractive, slim females, the same people you would see in yoga um, videos or photos doing asanas previously, now doing Qigong. So therefore, the, the photos have switched. Now, I'm not anti-putting young women in photos. Of course not. Totally not. My 50% of my school is women, young, old, whatever, like the whole spread, but 50% of the school. But there's also men in the school. You know, let's not pretend that's not the case. And <laughs> it would be like me taking a photo of the class and be like, guys, out of the way, out of the way. Just want the, just want the chicks in it, you know, get them out. Of it. It's just so bad, you know. And then they start to take those women, of course, and then they've, they've supplanted the, the background. So now the infinity pulls it, which actually I'm guilty of that, but that's because I spend a lot of time around them. But you know what I mean? Like they're starting to copy the yoga marketing. And I saw this starting to happen. And initially I thought, Oh, well, like it doesn't matter. Who cares? And maybe it doesn't matter, you know. And, and, and I think people are people. They want variety. And when they're bored of yoga, they'll find something else. What comes after yoga? What comes after Qigong? I don't know. There'll be some other art. Kaleri Pyatt or something weird. Sistema. Sistema will suddenly become about flow sequences and stretching by infinity pools. That's what will happen or, <laughs> or something, you know. So... Uh, yeah, whatever. It's just the latest thing. And I, I watched it happening, but it's not really Qigong. Example, animal frolics, which in Xia, prior to the adjustment into the large flowing sequences that largely took place from communist China, from the sports, the Qigong, official communist Qigong associational bodies, whatever you want to call them, in China created these sets of animal frolics. They were codified and created by the communists. Um, and then Wudang Mountain obviously created their own as well because they wanted to use the Chinese government ones, but they needed to Taoistify it, so they created their own, and every lineage has their own. And then, of course, there's more and more versions of these animal frolics created, and, and the reason they're so common or popular is because they're the easiest one to make into asanas because they're quite stretched. So it's easy to attract those yoga people with these animalistic things and animal-type postures, and because people also kind of love shamanism and, and women love animals, it's easy to kind of market this idea of, you know, pretending to be a monkey or something. So it was very obvious that those sets were going to become the core of, of the, the yogification of, of Qigong. But what people don't realize is yoga, uh, the animal frolics originally were actually static postures. They were static postures. You were stood in one of the forms that they linked to the animals. And what happened was the generation of qi movement with inside created something called zufagong, a, a, a movement of qi that caused your body to move against its volition in a very unattractive fashion. I will say we're talking snot, saliva, feces, if you're unlucky, you know, body fluids involved. As people go through this messy process that looks, it's not that bad, but looks a bit like the animals, you know, so... It, even what they were changed because the animal frolics were static postures and everything where they're moving and mobilizing and a modernization of it. Uh, you know, so already things are changing and things are morphing. So where, where are we up to now? You know, like if you're going to take Qigong and you're going to turn it into this modern yoga, well, the first thing you do is it's not really Qigong anymore because it doesn't include any energetics. It doesn't include chi. It doesn't include any of that because all, it becomes a body-based art. Now, the truth is there's no way to move your body that builds chi. 
trying to disagree with myself there, but I can't. You could, you could clip that statement and quote me. There is no movement you can do that could build qi. So if you're, because that's not how the qi is built. The qi is built upon a series, like the volume of energy within your body is based upon a series of meditative um, exercises and static work primarily that is designed to develop that energy in your body. And then what happens with qigong is when you move, you mobilize the qi that you've already built. So most of these, these exercises are not building qi. And because they don't have the qi building components there, then it just becomes body work. So then it becomes yoga. And then that's what you start to see is they have to start to explain how it works. You have to convince people to do it. So you have to make it sound like it's mystical. So then you have to talk about things like fascia lines and stuff. Oh, it's working because you're stretching this line and twisting this fascia line, which is probably correct for what it will do to your body. But that's not Qigong. That's not how Qigong works. So it's it's already morphed into something. It's not Qigong. It's, it's a movement art that is vaguely culturally connected to Qigong, right? And again, do, does it matter? Am I bitter about this? No, not at all. I think it's actually really good for people. I just, like, my view is this. I don't mind if things change. I don't mind if people combine things. I don't even care about if people want to create a fusion. I just think they should be honest about it so that people know. And if you market what you've turned into modern moving yoga to people as an authentic Qigong system, then uh, it's dishonest. And, and that's my issue. Like, I don't care what people do. I don't mind if whatever they do, as long as they say what it is so that people know what they're getting involved in when they start that, that practice. That's my view. So that was the first step that Qigong took towards becoming yoga. And I kind of, I won't go into more of the, how the body, body mechanics started to change because I kind of went through that in yesterday's podcast and it was a little bit of a funny one. I got a few angry messages off it actually from people that were, you're killing people with the way you do Qigong. And, and um, actually, I'd, whatever, people don't, people have their ideas, you know, and, and they think everything needs to be soft and everything needs to be flowing, but that's not the case, actually. There are many ways to work through this art. But I won't go into the the way that the body mechanics or the principles change because like I say I've discussed that already and you can look around and find my views on Qigong. What I primarily want to focus on really is the next step after that of the Qigongification or the yoga the yogification of Qigong sorry um, which is teacher training and this is really the thing that I was asked about because the next thing that was always going to happen is that people were going to start offering 100 hour 200 hour like month-long teacher training certificates okay and actually shorter sometimes 10 days i've seen which is that's rather brief isn't it 10 days 10 days you don't even know if you like it after 10 days you know and this is from people from the scratch from scratch never done anything do 10 days teacher training and then even worse online no, I think, you know, the world has changed and I think that people can teach online. I teach online. But it, let's not pretend that online teaching will ever be as... Well, it has some pros. has some pros over in-person teaching that you can rewind the video a lot. That's useful so you can take your time and, and move at your own speed. But it also has a downside that the lack of corrections and lack of contact, lack of energetics and transmission that comes from in-person teaching means that online teaching will never be as adequate as in-person teaching unless of course the in-person teaching is really crap of course but you know <laughs> there's variables but online teaching is never going to be as good as, as is in-person teaching as a rule but online teacher training this is very bizarre like this has become something i'm seeing all the time like i can make the jump to understanding people want to meet up with you on zoom and learn online okay fair enough you can teach and, and stuff but you can't, to qualify someone as a teacher online is insane. I, I, don't, I don't even, like, my mind can't make that, that jump. 
But this teacher training thing is starting to pop up over and over. Now, I'll be honest, within my school, Lotus Snake Ong, we, we did offer, have offered teacher training in the past. Um, and what that was actually was the absolute foundations of teacher training was three years long. The absolute beginning, like just about ready to start to assist people, was three years long, and we had, and that was intense. There was a lot of there was a lot of training during those three years, and then at the same time, um, we also, you know, the people who did got through it were the ones who already had a background in qigong before they even started, and we actually had a fifty percent success rate on on getting through it. So, and even then, after we'd done a couple of those, I decided I didn't really like it. So now we don't even do that. What we do is structure training through the process, and then you know, when it feels right and people have been around, then we start to, if they're interested, and look at the idea of becoming a teacher. It's a, it's a lengthy process. Consequently, most of the, the people who teach the material within our school, that we allow to, of course, are um, have been around for many, many years. You know, they have a, an extensive background in these arts. And it's more organic so that people are naturally getting to the right place that we can discuss with them this idea of teaching. But what we've never done is a month-long thing. You're like, no way, or 10 days, or no, 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 no. Years minimum in order to learn to do this properly. Otherwise, it will become yoga. Because here's where your problems come from. Number one, the standard's going to be shite. Like, there's, there's no way around it. The standard is going to be shite. If you're going to do a month-long teacher training, two-month-long, three-month-long, whatever, or all the other way, one week, 10 days, I don't know, five days, a weekend, an hour. How small we're going to get? <laughs> no, like just keep shrinking it down. If you're going to learn that way, then your standard is going to be poor. Your standard will be poor, meaning that anyone you teach will be poor and probably poorer because generally, <laughs> if you're not very good, you'll never be able to get your students any good, so they'll be worse. So you're gradually contributing to things becoming worse. So there's that. Okay, so even if we look at that second thing, is you don't even know if you can maintain a consistent practice. Because I would not want a teacher that doesn't practice. If I didn't practice, I wouldn't teach. That should be a rule. You'd be surprised how many teachers don't practice. There's a lot. But you, you, to me, that's a madness. A, a teaching should not replace practicing. But if you've only done a month or 10 days or a week or two months or whatever, then you don't even know if you can sustain a practice. How do you know? that you can sustain a regular daily practice over a period of many years until this art is built into your existence and you are connected to it if you haven't actually done it. Because sheer novelty can keep you going for a month. Sheer excitement can keep you going for a month. How about sheer egoistic pleasure at the thought of getting a certificate to the end? How about the financial um, uh, incentive of, of being able to open a club? That will keep you going for six months, you know, like whatever, it, it will stimulate the practice. And then once you've got that thing, well, pff, then you find out actually maybe you didn't really have a motivation for it. You didn't have a connection to this art and then your practice fades away. Then you're just another non-practicing person with a certificate who can then take students who, who are now being taught by someone that's not really practicing. So <laughs> whatever, what are you going to do? Offer month-long teacher training to them, and then, and, and then it becomes yoga. Then it, it falls into many of the issues that have fallen foul of the asana-focused modern contemporary yoga systems that we start to see. Now, in my opinion, all teachers who offer these short-term training courses know this. They know this. Um, so therefore, it's just dishonest. I think there's a couple of reasons why they do it. One is money. Two is ego. There's probably more reasons. One is money, obviously. There's a financial incentive for it. 
uh, people will pay more for teacher training and you can get a lot of people in. Look, if you put on a course and you say it's a month-long retreat, you'll get so many people. If you put on a course and you say it's month-long with teacher training, you'll get three times as many because people want an award. They want to win something at the end. So you get three times as many people. So then about money. Then if you make it 10 days, put it online, boy, you'll get fucking hundreds of these guys. Online course, you'll get you know, a certain amount of people online course with certificate, man, you'll get people from all over the world coming for certification online. So it's money. That's what it's about. Now, I'm never against anyone earning money from, from teaching. I earn money from, from, from teaching and I've done okay a bit, but it's never been the main drive. Like never, not at all. No decisions can be based upon that. That can't be the motivator or you've commodified or made a business out of something to its detriment and to your detriment karmically and spiritually and to the detriment of the people you're teaching so that money reason i don't like second one ego because people want to be the master and if you want to be the master you need a lot of people to look up to you and if you want to be a real master you don't need people to look up to you You need their students and their students you need, you need generations of people after you so a lot of people all of a sudden will decide, oh, I need to build this vast school. So I do it through this short-term teacher training. And all of a sudden, I have global empire. Then I'll get to travel and do seminars and what have you. Now, some of you listening to this might say I'm a terrible hypocrite. Maybe I am because I do head a large global international <laughs> internal arts association. But I have to say it was not built off of short-term teacher training things. It was not. It was built over 20 years of, of people coming to train together as a community, often camping in, in the forests or something like that, or being in Asia like we are here for prolonged periods of time, studying the art as a community, as a group, almost as a family, definitely a dysfunctional family with the occasional argument in, but at that kind of setting, so that people could get good and, and, and study these arts because we're all passionate about it. And then the byproduct of that is you have a number of people over a while, over 20 years, it's not a quick thing, that get to the stage where they run their own classes. And, and the result is, because they live abroad, we now have a large international community. But it was never built off these short-term things. And this is what, what happens, is these guys come up, and or girls, and they start to try to sort of franchise out their school and make it go from one teacher to 50 teachers overnight. And this is how they're doing it with these short-term teacher training courses. Now, the downside is... It's like building a house on bowed foundations. If nothing else, it will just fall to bits. It'll never amount to anything. And again, it's the kind of childlike ego of the teacher that has this kind of stimulated idea of it growing. And we're actually, I believe, like, life should be a slow burn. And these arts should be a slow burn. And, and if something organically grows, it does. And if it doesn't organically grow, it doesn't organically grow because it doesn't really make any difference. You know, Lotus Negong is a huge school, very unwieldy in many ways. But luckily, I have good seniors who've been with me lots of years who are really good, really good at what they do. And they, they teach and they manage whole sections of the school. And, and if I did it on my own, it would all, it would all fall to bits. <laughs> so more power to the, to the super helpful seniors inside this school that, that do all of that. Um, and also, secondly, it doesn't really matter how big your school is. I'm still sat here on my own talking on a microphone. You know, nothing changes. I've done my practice today. I'm on my own. I'm doing my work. That's the, the way that a school should build. It should be slow and grow, developably, organically, based upon skill and community. And then as a byproduct of that, either grows or it doesn't. If it becomes a, a movement or whatever, that's okay. But you as a practitioner, you as a teacher, for myself, still my practice and what I am doing is the center of my timetable and my life. I give a lot of my time to, to people that I can. 
I'll help people as much as I can. A lot of people reach out and I can't, don't have the time to help them. So I, I would allow seniors in the school to do that. But I spend a lot of my time teaching and helping and stuff. But still, the, the center of what I do is, is for me, is for my skill. And then second to that is the skill of the people I'm teaching. And I can't improve their skill if I say to them, I'm going to do a 10-day certificate or something. It's just crass, isn't it? You know, it's like the... I'm sure that yoga must have gone through a similar thing. I'm sure yogis, you know, wearing a nappy, sat in a cave with one arm in the air, dreadlocks all over the place. You know, I'm sure they're covered in ash or something because they love ash, don't they? I'm sure that they would be flipping out in their caves, maybe not because they've achieved pure compassion, but I'm sure they would not be a fan of this kind of movement of what's happened. The the, cap, the sort of capitalist, if you want, thought it makes political, but the commercialization of these systems. And Qigong will fall foul of it. So that's a couple of reasons. One, money. Two, ego. So let's, you know, let's look at a part of the problem. There, there's the other thing, okay, is maybe I, wanna, maybe I should be kinder. Maybe the altruistic version of this is some people might think the more people that teach Qigong, the better. It's in that mindset. So as in, if I train up 30 people in 10 days, in a month, two months, three months, and then they learn the sets, they can go and teach those sets to other people and they benefit more people. I would say sure, but it shows that the teacher doesn't really understand the art. A teacher that thinks like that doesn't understand the art. They haven't gone deep because, for example, one of the comments I had under yesterday's video, you can see it, and, and, and actually nothing wrong with this comment. I'm not complaining. It was actually very funny. The person was saying it sort of semi-humorously, I think, but they said, you make these art, they know you make these arts sound very complicated and difficult or something, something like that. I don't know, paraphrase. Uh, to which my response was, yes, they are complicated and difficult because it's, it's the truth. They are. They're not simple. People think Qigong, you know, you just breathe and you move your arms up and down or you imagine a red light and then you put your mind on this. It's not that simple. On the surface it is, but once you start going deep, it's a very, very complex and intricate art slash science slash spiritual practice slash life absorbing thing that is highly challenging and many of the actual processes to do in your body beyond the beginner stages are very difficult and take countless hours a great deal of refinement and some very um, specific mental qualities that actually make it a very very difficult thing to do to master qigong which is something i haven't done is one of the most difficult things i think a person can do in this life that's how complicated qigong is you've got more chance of no, we won't even go down it. it's just very complicated i don't put you off <laughs> so if i'm of that attitude then i can't possibly think well if i teach these people in 10 days it'll benefit the world because of course those 10 people what they'll have is a very shallow knowledge of it they won't have come anywhere near scratching the surface of it show it and often it shows that that teacher thinks the art is more simple than it is. Um, and they're wrong. The art is complicated. There's several of them here in, in Bali, and I don't want to start a war with them, but they're just, they've simplified yoga down to a child's level, and that's a bit mean, isn't it? They've, but it's true. What can I do? I can't lie. They've simplified it down to a child's level, and, and now this is what they offer. And, and not all of them. There's some good teachers here too, but there's a bit of that, you know. And the same globally around the world. And it, so it suggests to me, did they not go deep themselves? Did they not realize how deep this art is? Or did they not care and they wanted to simplify? I don't know. Like, I'm not sure. I can't get inside the mindset of people like that. 
because they're not how we think. I think that if I study something I'm passionate about, I want to go as deep as I can. And therefore, when I teach people, I want to present it to an as, as deep, deepest format as I can. I don't want to simplify anything. You know, like the simplified Tai Chi. I remember when I was a teenager, they would go, here's simplified Tai Chi. And they want to teach it to you. I'm thinking, well, I'm not a simpleton. I don't want simple Tai Chi. I'm not simple in the head. So therefore, I was a little insulting. It's condescending to tell me you're going to teach me this simplified Tai Chi. Same with Qigong. His simplified Qigong. I'm not a simpleton. No, thank you. I am a fully capable human being with a working intellect. And <laughs> I need to engage with every part of my being in order to study these arts. So I don't want it simple. I want it as it is. And if it's complicated and difficult, then I accept that. That's good. And if it means I'll fail, then all right, I'll fail. But I would rather have the real thing than the simplified version. So I already have an aversion to these kind of stripping things down to the absolute basics because it's, it's an error. It's an error. Now, if nothing else, one of the components of Qigong is to increase the volume of Qi. Now, you've got to a stage where many people don't even believe in Qi, in which case I don't know why they do Qigong. But if you're going to build Qi, you can't do it quick. It takes time, man. Every time you you do the exercises, it's like a little drip, one drip. Actually, I was talking to uh, my friend Adam, Adam Meister, a controversial <laughs> Tai Chi fellow to say the least. And he talks about it like, uh, I'll probably get his quote wrong, but like every hour of practice is like a drip going into a bucket and you need know, to fill the bucket. And I think it's a good analogy, although I might argue that the bucket's more like a, you know, <laughs> several buckets or whatever. But the, the, the implication being that it's a slow grind. You know, it takes time to build. One thing I was always averse to when I went to schools was if the teacher ever said something like this, and this is very common. You walk in, the teacher goes, oh, you're all already masters. You're all already masters. You're all masters. And, and you see people in the room go, mm, yes, I'm a master. The teachers are a master. Ego flourished, you know. And what it normally meant was it was very easy to suck those people in by their ego to make them a part of your franchise. That's what it is. It's a confidence trickster thing to draw people in. Whereas in my mind, I was never, my ego would never be drawn in by that. So the teacher would say, you're a master. I'd think, no, I'm not. I'm an idiot. But I'm here to learn. But it would almost, it would put me off quite often, those kind of things. Or people telling me, oh, we can do this really quick or something like that. No, we can't. It's going to take time. I knew it would take decades to study these arts. And that's what I've been doing. And I don't think I'm that slow a learner. I'm probably medium. I don't think I'm a fast learner. I don't think I'm a slow learner. I think I'm in the middle. I think I'm pretty normal. And at my speed of learning, it takes decades. And it it's hard. So I would not want to give that attitude to someone else that you can do it in this short space of time. So then that brings you to this thing, you know, like people will say, well, 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 okay, it's long, it's complicated, but this teaching certificate gets you up and running, gets you up and running. I mean, it's like you're, you've got your your first, you've just got your driving. That's like when you learn to drive and say, you got your driving license, now you learn to drive. Have you heard that saying? Didn't work for me, I'm a shit driver. But it also doesn't work in Qigong. You can't you can't give, get someone up and running. Yeah, I know you can't do Qigong yet. I know you've only done it for 10 days. I've only done it for a month. You've only done it for two months. And you're still really a beginner. And you have no idea what you're doing. But it's okay. We got you started with teaching. Like, what's that mean? And then I carry on learning after I'm teaching. That's called fraud. And that's called dishonest to the people that are going to learn off of that person. You know, like, I've traveled the world looking for these arts. Okay, but even when I couldn't, even when I was young and I hadn't traveled and I was in my hometown, I would not want to walk into my local community center and no teacher ever said, oh, yeah, yeah, I've been doing this a month. What? I would just walk out, as I would hope all teachers would walk out, all students would walk out, because you can't have a teacher that's done something for a month. No way. 
So that's all about skill, isn't it? Like the actual mechanics of it, as well as checking that someone's actually passionate about it. Like teachers should be obsessives. You know, like obsessive people. When you start an art, everybody will tell you you're too obsessed, like it's unhealthy. You know, like you start martial arts and you're doing it every day. And you're doing it in your sleep, isn't it? You're punching and the quilt's flapping around because you're still punching in your sleep. And then you do qigong and you're just doing it all the time and you wait and you're going to sleep and the qi is moving. Like you become absorbed by it and people around you go, oh, you're obsessed. You're obsessed. It's unhealthy. Oh, the rest of your life will fall apart if you become obsessed. You know what obsessives should become? the teachers. And it's the same in any art. Obsessives in history become history teachers. Obsessives in geography become geography teachers. Obsessives in yoga become yoga. That's what it should be. The obsessives use that obsession to study to such a deep level that they become the people that are the holders of that art. If you're not obsessive, you shouldn't teach. You just shouldn't. I don't see obsession as a a mental illness. Maybe if it gets to the time you have to slam your, your door five times to (laughs) before you can go outside or something, maybe that's a little imbalanced. But if there is a a deep addiction and absorption into an art to that level, that's not unhealthy. That just means you have the potential to become someone that can lead other people into it. But if you're not obsessed, you shouldn't teach. And I think that if you're going to do a short-term course, you don't know if you're obsessed. Everyone's obsessed on the first lesson. Everyone's obsessed for the first couple of weeks. Everyone's obsessed for a month. What about a year? What about 10 years? What about 20 years in? Are you still obsessed? Do you wake up and live and think and breathe this art and then go to sleep the same after all those years? If you do, you might be obsessed. You might have obsession. If you're listening to this, let me diagnose you. If you are listening to this and you wake up and you think about the internal arts and you practice the internal arts all day around your job and then you go to sleep and the last thing you think about is internal arts and you dream about internal arts, you might be obsessed. Okay, You are now diagnosed. So what does that mean? Does it mean you have a problem? No. It means you're quite likely to become one of the teachers. That's what it means. So in a short-term teacher training course, you don't know if you're obsessed. Therefore, you don't know if you're the right person to teach. That's my view. So all that to do with skill. Why am I doing this podcast? Yes, I'm answering the question of why I'm against these short-term things and the kind of yogification of Qigong. Here's the other thing. Character. Character. So how about this? So let's look at this, right? If I have a, a class, say 20 people in it, 30 people in it, whatever, a class, and they all come in and they're all new. Oh, okay, well, easy example. I just taught in Perth. I had um, 40 new people. Well, some I knew, actually. Some I knew. Some I knew from um, the Bali school and, and stuff because they came over because it's close. But most of the people were new. So say this room is full of new people. I don't know them. I don't know these people. I don't know their life stories. I don't know their personality. I don't know their foibles. I don't know their you know, their complications. I don't know their dark sides. I don't know their manner. I don't know any of these things. These are strangers to me. And then what happens over the course of the three days of teaching is I get to know them a little bit. And of course, what level do I get to know people? Well, manners really, isn't it? More than anything else. That's all I encounter at first. Are they polite? Are they shy? Are they confident? Are they friendly? Very superficial things that I learn about those people. Now, already at that level, there's already a bit you can tell about people, but not much. So then, say I were to take those people that I don't know, and then I certificate them to teach. Well, it's a dangerous thing, because then I've just taken a bunch of people, I put them in a position of power, and I've underlined and ratified that it's okay for them to have a position of power. So now they've got people coming to train with them. Well, that could be problematic, couldn't it? Because what if that person is 
sexually abusive, whether that person is psychologically abusive, whether that person is, is, is financially abusive, whether that person has mental health issues of their own. Maybe they're not even abusive, but maybe they're just not in a place where they should be doing that. They're going to cause problems for the people that they teach, okay? Because if I'm going to allow new people to come in, I've gone, okay, you can teach. I don't know you, but go for it. And then that person is abusive, then the, the students will pay the price. Their students will pay the price. If that person has mental health issues and shouldn't be in that position, well, both of those people will pay the price. The teacher for being in, put in that position they shouldn't be in. And also the people coming to learn from them. So therefore, there's all kinds of dangers there, right? So how about this? You might say, well, people can leave the class. This is your argument. So if they come in and someone's abusive, you can leave. Okay. Well, students project. You know, students project. So let's look at what happens when I teach. I try to present myself as much as I can, as honestly as I can. I mean, I think it's fair to say the way I talk here on the podcast is the same that I talk to my friends, usually about different topics, I'll be honest. It seems weird if I just lectured them on Qigong. But a similar personality, similar sense of humor, similar to how I am, right? That's the same how I am with anybody. If I'm overly friendly with strangers. I don't have good boundaries. That's how I am. I'm just chatting and whatever. This is how I, I talk to people. This is how I, I communicate, yeah? So I try to come across as as I am, which I think is fairly down to earth, maybe, a little bit insane, sometimes a bit pushy, like whatever, but this is me. But I don't think I come across as, well, I would hope, because if I do, then it's not deliberate. I hope I'm not kind of come across as a guru or some kind of messianic figure or something because that's not the aim if i was the messiah the world would be doomed you know so that's definitely not my aim i bring on the second apocalypse by accident you know so i'm not trying to be that person never would i'm not trying to pretend i'm you know like some bentino massaro character that's just a to me a, a fake guru a very psychologically abusive person as far as i can see presenting themselves as this kind of altruistic enlightened being that's not what i'm trying to do at all and i'm trying to be down to earth and when i chat with people i will try to openly chat with them i'll chat about their day when i'm on courses i'll have lunch with with the group if they're having lunch on the grass i'll go sit with them and, and talk about rubbish i mean the course just now in australia was everything in the weather to smack down wrestling to you know, whatever just chatting rubbish with people because you know, I'm, I'm sociable and that's life. So even with this demeanor, even with this demeanor, with which I hope is not guruified at all, because that's not the aim, people will still project that on me. So if I have 100 people in a room, which is not abnormal on my courses, 200 people sometimes, there's a percentage of people that are projecting that onto me. They are projecting. It doesn't matter how many times I say, look, I'm not your guru. Well, there's people that are coming there to be saved. And even if I say, I'm not here to save you. I'm not, like, no, there is. I'm just teaching the mechanics of an art. That is going to be there, right? Projection is not always under your control. So how to work with it is, is you try to explain it and discourage people out of it because that's not healthy and no one should have a savior they should learn to be autonomous and independent that's the healthiest thing for all human beings to be a sovereign individual who can stand up for yourself but it's always going to be there and until i can get that individual strength out of people then i recognize for a little while realistically there's going to be a bit of projection on me and i have to manage that as best i can fend it off as much as i can and definitely not play on it and i you know i, I do my best with that but what if I was a more psychologically abusive person or a sexually abusive or financially abusive or I have my own issues or what if I believed I was the Messiah, something like that? 
obviously there would be problems there because by projecting on from a very disempowered position, a student is already putting themselves in a fairly risky position. And I'm aware that when people come on with retreat on me, they're ultimately in a very disempowered place. And I have to make sure that that disempowerment is is not an issue for them. I have to keep them safe. I have to teach them. I have to sort of encourage them to be autonomous and recognize that human beings are just human beings and that actually they can rely upon themselves if they learn to develop well. And that's what we have to do. But if I were to do the opposite and I would take advantage of that, it'd be very easy for me to create a, a kind of sinister cult with a lot of very damaged people that I was feeding off of. By saying that, that's probably going to come back to bite me in the ass, isn't it? Like some kind of confession. <laughs> but but definitely that's not what I do. I think if you come to Lotus so long, if you ever train with us, you'll agree. It's a fairly friendly place with people laughing and joking. Now, in order for me not to be an abusive person, to take advantage of those projections that come from students that all teachers get, I had to have had my teachers, right from when I was young, through the you know, ones I've had over long term or through the ones I have now, check my character. And the way they checked my characters is, okay, there's an esoteric thing. Maybe sometimes they could look inside me and, and see on a deeper level some of the causal parts of me. But aside from that, a lot of it was actually getting to know me. So huge amounts of time had been spent with my teachers, all of them, different ones. Everything from my, my family, obviously knew me when I was younger, through to the, the Chinese masters and Western masters that I've had over the years. And, and when they got to know me, often they would actually pull me apart a little bit. And you know, I remember my first teacher thought I was too... Well, he thought I was obnoxious, and he wasn't wrong. I was obnoxious. I was young. I was obnoxious and angry, and 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 consequently, there was a lot of trying to break that down in me. And and then other teachers would talk about other things. And even the teacher I have now will sometimes sort of say, "Okay, let's double check this is coming from the right place." And I am happy. I'm, I'm pleased to say actually that I, I very much respect his word and his insight, probably more than any other human being on the earth. I'll be honest. I'm highly respectful of my teachers insights and i'm i'm constantly blown away by the the level of well insight is the word that the man has into such things so incredible i feel blessed to have him in my life um and i take everything to heart but i'm very pleased actually that he's generally 99.9 percent .9 of the time happy with my uh, behavior and my morals and this is something we discuss my ethics and the way that i do things and, and that's important to me because i will run ideas past my teacher run teaching that I'm doing and say, is this right? Is it, or, or communications I've had with the student, talk to him, is this right? And, and we'll look at the ethics of it. And it's all good. I think he thinks I'm a bit flippant sometimes, but that's all. I'll correct that. Um, but anyway, that's a tangent. That's a bit personal to me. But, you know, what I'm saying is they're happy with me teaching and they're happy with me being in the position I'm in, not just because of my skill set, but because they, they know that I will handle the situation of being in a position of power over other people as morally and ethically as, I, as, I, as I'm able to so that those people are safe and can grow in the right way and they don't become dependent. If they didn't know me and they gave me a short-term teaching certificate, well, they're taking a gamble. They're taking a big risk, aren't they? And if I, as a teacher, were to have a bunch of people come to me and go, yeah, 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 I've been here three weeks. Yeah, you know how to move your arms in the right way. You know how to... Uh, walk like a tiger and you can flap your arms like a crane and yeah you can quack like a duck so no problem we can make you a qigong teacher you'll change the world but i don't know them if there's 10 of them three of them might be highly abusive people if i'm unlucky seven of them might be abusive people two of them might not be abusive but just might not be able to handle power it might go to their head it's a very weird thing so then when they're in that position and they've got that power when they get their own students who will project no matter what that's the nature of people they will project then what you will do is you will run the risk of causing harm. So this is the other side of 
and then I'll be to blame if I certificate them. But there you go. So this is the other side of there not being the short-term teacher training things because you don't know the person. The, the nature of the person is as important as their skill set if you're going to put them in a position of power. I'll be honest, I have students that have been with me a number of years and they're very skilled at what they do. But I, maybe I shouldn't admit this, but I, I won't allow them to teach. And if they ask me, I'll tell them. And the reason is because I don't trust their character. Whilst they're skillful, they're very good at what they do and I'm happy to teach them. And, and they're fine as an individual within a group. According to my admittedly subjective assessment of who they are, I just don't think they'd be good in front of people. I don't think they'd be good in a position of power because I don't think their character would handle it well and I think they're more likely to cause accidental or even deliberate hurt. So therefore, I hold back on even discussing anything like that with them because they're not the right people. And at the same time, it's not just because they're bad people. I've had some students that I trained that were very good and there's one I can think of, um, uh, you know, uh, I just a person I know who trained with me for many years, was very good at various things, but suffered with mental health problems, quite bad. And sometimes she would be up, sometimes she would be down. And when she was up, she was great, but when she was down, it wasn't good. So consequently, I held off on allowing her to teach anything, no matter how good she was at the art. Not because I thought she was a bad person, because, because I knew that her mental health would potentially put her at risk and other people who might learn off them. So that was a decision I made, and eventually it got very frustrating for that person, and, and, and it was too much for them. They left because what they wanted to do was teach, and I wouldn't allow them to. And actually what happened was when they left, they started teaching, because of course, when they don't need my say-so anymore, they give themselves the right to teach, but it's not my I can do about that. That happens a lot, you know. Can I teach? No. You're not ready, but we'll work on it. Okay, then they leave. Then they teach. Okay, that's what happens a lot. And normally what it means is they just teach and they don't list you in their bio because they don't want anyone to know who taught them because if that person, their students would have come to me, I would say, yeah, I didn't want them to teach because they weren't the right person. That happens quite often. The other thing that will happen is people will come to Lotus Nigong, for example, have had several people train many, many years and they get really good, but they're the wrong person and their character is not right. So I'll say no. So then they will leave and they'll go to a 10-day teacher training course online, <laughs> get the certification from them, and then we'll set up schools. So that's the, you know, I don't really know what to do about that. There's nothing I can do about it. So the, what I will say is, you know, if you want to know who is taught in Lotus Negong, who do we ratify? Who do I personally support as a teacher of this material? It's listed on the website. And if they're not listed on the website, I don't support them as a teacher. That's it. It's as simple as that. It doesn't matter what they say. It matters what is listed on our site. That's our official listings. If they're not on there, I don't, I don't ratify them to teach this material. So that's very cut and dry. So off topic. Yes, this is answering the question. This is also why I don't like the short-term courses because here's some things with, with teaching people to be teachers. Number one, they have to have skill. Skill takes time. Skill takes time, ages. Two, they have to have a regular practice. Maybe obsessed was a little bit too far. <laughs> Maybe I was uh, being slightly hyperbolic, but they must be really into it, shall we say. No, fuck it. They should be assessed. Okay. <laughs> we should check the person who's really, really living that art because otherwise you shouldn't teach. We can't do that if it's not long term. So you need skill and you need obsession. That takes time to know. They need to have integrated into their body. They need to have made mistakes so that when their own students make mistakes, they can recognize it. When people make mistakes, I know because I've made all those bloody mistakes, so I recognize it. And I can, all, I can often head those off right from the beginning. Oh, don't do that with your body because I know that I did that for five years and it wasn't good for me. And, and those things are a major boom with teaching. That's where the experience comes. That's where the wisdom of learning how to work with people comes from. 
after that, after skill and all those things, okay, then just the what students expect. What student wants to learn of a teacher that's done a short-term course? I would hope none. I don't want a yoga teacher who's done a month. I don't want a Qigong teacher that's done a month. I don't want a Qigong teacher that's only learned online. I want a Qigong teacher that's gone deep into these arts. And a martial art teacher, the same, you know. And then, of course, the final thing is character. If you haven't had someone that you trust, and, you know, if you don't trust them, go find another teacher. But a teacher you trust to subjectively look at your character and, and make a decision, maybe on his own or collectively, about your nature as a teacher, then there's no ethical checks on you. And you don't have insight. We don't generally. It's amazing how little insight we have. Sometimes we need someone from the outside to point out that you know there might be problems. So character checking is an important thing as well. And if you did that, you would have a lot less of the abuse that you're seeing in the Qigong and the Tai Chi world. A lot of the abuse which you, you know, go, on and go online, look it up, you'll find tons in the yoga world and increasingly in the Qigong world as it becomes more widespread. Meditation world, exactly the same. Vajrayana, Tibetan, Buddhist world, terrible. Like any of these scenes that have grown have got this kind of abuse um, taking place in it, you know. It, it, it's, not, it's not quite at Epstein's Island level, but it's getting there, you know, sometimes with some of the stuff that goes on. And it comes from a couple of things. Is one that the teacher never checked that person's development before they allowed them to teach, so issues weren't rooted out. And and these are cultivational arts, so there should be a an aspect to psycho development, <laughs> not developing psychos. That's not what I mean. Psychological development. I don't know why I took logical off there. Just developing psychos. No, psychological development should be there. Ethics, morals, precepts. There, I say things like this are a large part of these arts, and those teachers haven't been checked. And then often those teachers don't have a teacher of their own. They're generally people that are sort of flying solo with no supervisor. And I always think that's a mistake. Everybody needs a supervisor of some sort. All of the students that I have taught to the stage to teach at some point will come to me to explore something and I will supervise for them. Um, not not their class, that's their own business. But I'll, if they have any problems, they can thrash it out with me and we'll chat about it and we'll work through it, you know. And that's how it should be. So that when you have an ethical quandary, you can figure it out. And part of my role is to help them as best I can to be as moral as they can with, with what they're doing. And that's why people need that. I don't intervene in people in, in other Lotus Tigong teachers' classes. I don't take any money from them. It's not a financial thing. There's no franchise. I don't charge them cash. I don't get involved in what they're doing. I allow them to teach as they see fit. But we do supervise a little bit. And, and we, we have these back and forwards. We chat, you know. And I have the same from my teacher. I chat with him. I am supervised by him, to, so I know what is going on. That's how these chains work. And if any, if, and you have to be at a point where the person above you, if they said, "No, no, no, you're doing it wrong," you have to think. You have to change your behaviour. Those kind of things. That kind of look. The relationship for that to happen has to be based on trust. You know, the people I've taught would trust me. I would hope to have those conversations because the relationship has been built up over time. And the same with the person who teaches me. The relationship has been built up over time. That can't be done on a short course. So this is what you will see if you allow or we continue to allow Qigong to go down this route, is you will see a movement away from actual internal principles towards flowing sequence of body-based stuff, meaning it becomes a very self-orientated body-based practice. You will see skill levels of teachers go down, franchising doing nothing other than producing large amounts of money for the people doing these 10-day online courses, which are who are frauds, that's what they are. You will start to see um, 
people who teach but don't practice, people who teach who don't really have any knowledge of what they're doing, and you'll start to see unethical behavior arising because any Tom, Dick, or Harry, any semi-abusive person can become a teacher because there was no check on them. That's what will happen. And that's why I am anti these short-term courses. So when people message me saying I'm doing these short-term courses, I always advise them not to. And go find a teacher that you trust. Not me, I'm a nutcase. Go find somebody else. <laughs> go find a teacher that you trust that you can work with who isn't giving you a shortcut into these arts. Go find one. Look, do it with authenticity. If you really want to benefit the world and you want to benefit people, and you want to benefit the scene, dare I say, then go learn something in depth. Go learn whether in a place where there's no incentive to, no carrot on a stick, you can become a teacher. That's not a short-term thing. So that you develop an art, develop the art, and forget the idea of teaching. It doesn't matter. You work on you first. You work and you accept there's things to change and develop, build this skill. And then if the time is right, and then if the situation allows it, then you look at such things. Then you look at maybe discussing with your own teacher how to teach, and you go down that route. And if that is maintained in the Qigong world, well, it won't be perfect. <laughs> Not that it ever is. But it'll be definitely better than what has happened in the contemporary yoga scene. And unfortunately, that's where Qigong is going. Okay, that's where it's going. So we need to bring the old people back into the photos, bring the fat people back into the photos, bring the guys back into the photos. It's not just women in lingerie walking around on beaches doing stretchy Qigong, but I'm a bird and stuff like that. Actually bring, like, show the, the actual people who do it. Some idiot like me, a middle-aged bald dude. Put me in photos, that'll scare everyone away. But bring it back down to like, this is what it is. And <laughs> open up the art and say, look, it's complex, it's integral, it's a life study. We're not going to simplify it. And I won't simplify it because I'm not going to patronize you because I don't believe you're simpleton. So we're going to do the complex version of the art. I'm not going to worry about teaching. We're going to develop skill, develop your character, really benefit you, really get you to understand how to use this as a cultivational system, a practice for your life. And then the final part of it is maybe at some stage it's right for you to teach and for you to assist people. And if that happens, then you will see a level of integrity, decency, and quality come into the Qigong world that sadly the yoga world has lost. Not everybody, of course, there's some very good yoga teachers out there. Okay, but obviously you know what I mean on the mass market of yoga, the uber yoga scene. Um, and it's starting to come into the Qigong world. And that's what I will always push back against, basically. So, uh, that's my view. Hope that's clear. <laughs> it's probably not a popular view, but um, yeah, well, that's life, isn't it?